you have your Bibles, you can open to Psalm 46, verse 10. We'll look at it in just a few moments. Over the past few months, we've been looking at the fact that God's called us to be peculiar, uh, strange, which is not hard to believe if you look at some of us. Uh, uh, We're strange, but strange not in a weird way, but strange in that we are set apart from what the world system and what the world intends for us to be, that we are called to be peculiar, set apart, holy, distinct, that we are God's own special possession, that we might declare the excellencies, the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and brought us into marvelous light. And so for these two months, we've been looking at how the church, the people of God are called to be distinct. We've looked at how we are called to be a community of loving relationships in the midst of a culture of expressive individualism. We've looked at how are we called to be a community who follows Jesus in a culture of ideologies. We're called to be a community sent with the good news of Jesus Christ to a culture that is lost in itself. And we're called to be a community of holiness in a culture where anything goes. That was that famous Mother's Day message on sexual immorality. So we are also called to be a community of peace in a culture of outrage. And we're called to be a community who abides in Jesus in a, in a culture where everyone's trying to optimize their lives. Today, we're called to be a community of prayer and stillness in a culture of hurry and noise. The Catholic Cardinal Robert Serra writes in his book, The Power of Silence, modern society can no longer do without the dictatorship of noise. Without noise, postmodern man falls into a dull, insistent uneasiness. He is accustomed to permanent background noise, which sickens yet reassures him. Noise gives him security like a drug on which he has become dependent. With its festive appearance, noise is a whirlwind that avoids facing itself. Agitation becomes a tranquilizer, a sedative, a morphine pump. But noise is a dangerous, deceptive medicine. A diabolic lie that helps man avoid confronting himself in his interior emptiness. The awakening will necessarily be brutal. Welcome to church, everyone. <laughs> Such an upbeat message, right? Wow, how we doing? Okay, everybody okay? Sobering. Here's the thing. Our world is saturated with hurry and noise. And we are all pushed to operate at full speed, adding more words, more data, and more anxiety as we go. And it's in this kind of world and pace that many of us keep, most all of us keep, that the Lord speaks these words from Psalm 4610. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This is a prayer from the sons of Korah, 
which was a group enlisted by David to offer night and day prayers in the tabernacle. That was their job. They were to pray around the clock in the tabernacle. And it's from these sons of Korah that we get this famous line, be still and know that I am God. It's a verse that I have quoted many, many times. You may have too. I've quoted it to myself. I've quoted it to many others who are in a moment of distress. Be still and know that I am God. It's a verse that Tyler Staten in his book, Pray Like Monks, Live Like Fools, has called the starting place of prayer. It's the gateway to prayer, to be still and to know that he is God. Now, that be still command seems simple enough. And that is until you realize and remember how increasingly hectic and chaotic our world is today. John Mark Comer uh, writes about three inventions, groundbreaking inventions throughout history that has drastically changed the way that we live. The first, he says, is the clock. In 1370, the first public clock was erected in Cologne, Germany. Most historians see it was a turning point in history where days would no longer be ruled by the natural rhythm of the sun's rising and setting, but where we'd start managing our time artificially. It helped us see that time could be a resource rather than a limitation. The second invention was 500 or so years later, the light bulb, invented by Thomas Edison in 1879, which freed us of even further being limited by daylight. Because now we could just turn the light on and keep on working. Increased productivity would surely come, but of course we'd have to give up on our sleep. In fact, it's estimated that prior to the light bulb, the average American slept 11 to 11 and a half hours a night. (laughs) All of you. (laughs) I didn't expect that would get the reaction, but (laughs) like, oh my gosh, what I would do. (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, we're sleep deprived. Or as my friend Stephen Simpson says, deep slepervation. Um, but a recent Gallup research, actually not so recent, it's 10 years ago, so it's probably worse, showed that our average American gets 6.8 hours of sleep a night. To which some of you moms and dads are saying, I would love for that. Um, then in 2007, the year after Facebook allowed anyone who had an email address to sign up, no longer just being for educational institutions. Apple released the first iPhone. And Steve Jobs promised in that release to put the world at our fingertips and to improve productivity and to greatly enhance our social lives. What they didn't tell us is how addictive these things would be. In 2016, 
A study was made that showed the average smartphone user, and I've shared this before, touches their phone 2,617 times a day. In the course of 76 different sessions, taking up more than two and a half hours of their day. But if you are a millennial or a Gen Zer, don't worry, you double that to over five hours a day. They didn't tell us how the negative impact would be on our cognitive outcomes. Or as one study showed, since 2000, our average attention span has dropped from a whopping 12 seconds down to eight seconds just behind that famously attentive creature, the goldfish, <laughs> who is at nine seconds. Now, I've just waited four seconds to see if I can maintain your attention. <laughs> we're doing pretty good. Only a few of you were looking out the window in that pause. And Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg also failed to tell us how these time-saving, time-sucking devices and their storehouse of apps would negatively impact our self-esteem. That persistent use of social media by adolescents would literally change the way their brains are developed. And that instead of greater productivity, we'd develop that ment what mental health professionals are now calling hurry sickness, which alludes to anxious behavior because of incessant hurry. Our culture is so hurried and so noisy and so anxious. I think we need to hear the words of the Lord through the sons of Korah. Be still. Be still. But when we hear that, we have to admit, knowing what we do about the last eight, 900 years of development in our culture, that being still is not as simple as it sounds. You can hardly even go to the bathroom without taking your iPhone. Can you imagine leaving the house without your Bible? Sure you can, but never that phone. I might leave my wallet, but I gotta have the phone because the wallet's on it. Dallas Willard once was asked what one thing a modern person could do to deepen their relationship with Jesus and to become more like him. And he paused for a minute and he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. Now, I wonder how many Christians would agree with that. I hear a lot of Christians talking about what our greatest enemy is today. I'm not going to list those things here. But Willard seems to think that hurry is our greatest enemy. Do we agree? I think Richard Foster, who is really a modern-day mystic, he agrees. He said this, in contemporary society, our, our adversary majors in three things. Noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can get us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. Wow, is that true or what? It's all in this hurry and noise that God says to us, be still. 
not as a method to take better care of ourselves, you know, as a challenge for self-care so that we can do a better job of juggling our responsibilities. But his charge to be still is about relinquishing control. It's about quieting not just our schedules, but our anxious thoughts. The things that churn inside, not just settling the things that churn outside. It's about stepping away from a hurried life where our internal emptiness can be addressed, where we are quiet enough, silent enough, focused enough that Jesus can actually pinpoint and show us what he wants to touch and where the peace that surpasses all understanding can guard our hearts and rule our minds. I want to make a confession to you as I've been studying about this message today. Can someone go turn the air down just one degree? I see people fanning and that will help. Um, This is my confession. As I've been studying for this message, it has occurred to me that when I am commonly asked, how am I doing? Almost nine out of 10 times, I will use the word busy in the answer. Well, I'm busy, you know, everybody's busy. Of course, I, that's factual, I am busy. You're, you're busy, we're all busy. With commutes and calendars and jobs and kids and chores and unopened emails and to-do lists and action items, we're busy. But here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Has our busyness become pathological. Where we live under compulsion, such hurried lives at such frenetic pace that we don't have time to be still and pray. I don't wanna ask, but think to yourself, when was the last time I was still in the presence of God? For more than just a few seconds. When was the last time that I took this verse in Psalm 46.10 and actually applied it to my life? Where I intentionally sat down or laid down or put myself prostrate before him, or maybe even walked through the park, but I was still in my hurried, anxious self, and I pondered the things of God. If we live such a hurried, frenetic pace, we don't have time to be still and we don't have time to pray and we don't have time to tend to the relationships that matter the most to us, it makes our hearts more like our chaotic schedules we're keeping than it does the place of rest that God has promised. God is asking us to just stop. Stop. Step off of the hamster wheel. Let the dizziness of our fast-paced life wear off and listen to the words Jesus spoke to his friend Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is worth being concerned about. Only one thing. Be still.
In the Latin, it's vacate, which is, of course, where we get our word vacation. Tyler Staten, again, in his book says, the invitation of prayer anytime, anywhere is this. Take a vacation. Stop playing God over your life for a moment. Which is the second part of the verse, be still and know that I am God. This is how we enter prayer. We, we get still. We stop. And then we remember that he is God. That he is God. Philip Yancey said, prayer is the act of seeing reality from God's point of view. <laughs> that his reality is more real than our own. That he is God, as Curtis always reminds us, and we are not. And nothing or no one else is either. He is God. You're not God. Your schedule's not God. Your demands are not God. All the pressures of your life is not God. He is God. Remember that. There are counterfeits out there, but there is no competition. A lot of wannabes, but only one God. Knowing that he is God is the first step to knowing him as God. The book of Job is, is fascinating in this way. Um, we know the book of Job. Uh, it's spelled job, interesting is that. The book of Job is something we go to when we wanna talk about suffering. And indeed, Job did suffer. But on a much bigger, broader scale, this book of Job gives us an inside look at one man sorting out his questions about the hardships in his life with a group of his three closest friends. And for 34 chapters of this book, they are going at each other they are taking turns, lamenting and explaining, correcting and cajoling, complaining and judging. Job and all three friends taking turns at dropping their wisdom. It, it does show us on a good note how sharing our deepest pain and the deepest parts of our lives with community can certainly bring comfort. And that's why we're in community. It helps. But it also shows that only bringing it to God can bring the kind of healing we really need. Talking about it with your friend or your neighbor or your spouse or even your pastor doesn't provide for you the healing that only God can give. And so while they're 34 chapters in talking about all of these things and Job's suffering and why he's suffering and what's wrong with him and what's wrong with them and what's potentially wrong with God and all of these things, they've yet to go to God. They've dropped their knowledge, exposited their wisdom on the deeper things of life and why things happen the way they do. And finally in Job 38, he takes it all to God. He turns and he prays. And God responds by asking him a series of questions, which I just think is so incredible. He doesn't 
he doesn't answer Job's questions. He asks his own, <laughs> which may be a secret for us. If we're looking for an answer, we might have to give an answer. God responds by asking this series of questions for four chapters. <laughs> and he asks questions that really take Job and shifts his thinking. It alters the way he's seeing things. His circumstances aren't different, but the way he sees them now is becoming different because of what God asks. God asks things like this. Were you there when I created the earth? Were you there when the morning stars sang a song and all the angels shouted their praise? Where were you? Or can you get the attention of the clouds or take charge of the lightning bolts? Are you in charge of that, Job? Is this something you have the power to do? Or do you know anything about the constellations or how they affect things on earth? Four chapters of questions. God is using these questions to change Job's perspective. And he remembers along the way, Job, though has suffered greatly and is in pain and agony himself and has lost everything. He is standing there recognizing he's been assaulting the one who gave him life in the first place. He's been taking him to court as if he has something to apologize for. And we're all prone to that, taking God to court as if he was guilty of a crime where we lay our charges against him. But he doesn't put God off. He doesn't snuff Job out. He simply reorients him to see what the truth is. He does the same thing for us. It's okay to ask questions of God. Just be prepared that he starts asking questions of you. And so four chapters of questions and God speaks and Job's perspective is changed. He remembers who God is. He remembers God is God and Job is not. And I love how the message puts Job's response in Job 42, one through six. Job answered God, I'm convinced you can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You asked, who is this muddy in the water, ignorantly confusing the issue, second guessing my purposes? I admit it. I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head, and you told me, listen, and let me do the talking. Let me ask the questions. You give the answers. I admit I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it firsthand, Job says. From my own eyes and ears, I'm sorry, forgive me. I'll never do it again. I promise I'll never again live on crusts of hearsay, crumbs of rumor. Job remembered who God was. He got still and he remembered that God is God and he is not. And he began to see his own life through God's point of view. And it began a process so deep in Job that we're told that Job's second half of life was richer and greater than his first. 
Be still and know that I am God. That's where it all starts. That's the gateway into a place of stillness and prayer. Being still before God and knowing that he is God. But I want to just remind us that the verse doesn't stop there, though a lot of us normally do. Be still and know that I am God. Boom. It has another thing to say. It says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Our being still, quieting our anxious thoughts, laying down our burdens and remembering that he is God, all points to him being exalted in all the earth. That's the destination of our prayer. Not just that we get quiet and still, not just that we know that he is God, but that he would be exalted in all the earth. In our lives, in our families, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our community, in our church, in our nation, in all the world, that he would be exalted. That's where we're headed. And we have to remember that that's the goal of all of this. That's the destination where God's presence becomes reality and his love is experienced by all who know him. Be still. Remember, he's God and you're not. That's where we all need to start. And as we do, we'll recognize that we will be changed and the world around us will start changing too. For he will be exalted in all the earth. Thanks be to God. My lovely wife is going to come and we're going to pray for you this morning encourage you in the things that the Spirit is doing and saying because he is here speaking. And I pray that you will respond in faith and trust that the Lord can move in your heart. What do you have, babe? This is a, excuse me. Some water. I'm good, thanks. This is a quote by Richard Foster as well, but it's one that I struggle with. Um, living like it's true, but I do believe it's true. And he says, our problem is that we think prayer is something to be mastered. How many of you have read a book or listened to a podcast on prayer in the last 12 months? Raise your hand. <laughs> We're all students. But he says, our problem is that we think that prayer is something to master like algebra or Excel. But when praying, we come underneath where we calmly and deliberately surrender control and become incompetent. In this kind of surrender, God is not destroying our will, but transforming it so that over a process of time and experience, we will freely will what God wills. Hmm. That's so good. And that's my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for you guys. We want to have prayers that avail much. Yeah. But they aren't going to avail if we are not in line with the Father's will. That's right. And unless we can experience this kind of prayer, where every part of us is laid out for him to 
keep, to prune, to do whatever it is that needs to be done, we aren't going to be as effective as our hearts long to be. Hmm. And we aren't going to be as transformed as we want to be. And we're not going to be as in love with the Lord as he desires us to be. That's so true. We're going to pray for you today. If you're uh, in need of prayer and these words, the Spirit is touching you and moving in your heart, my encouragement to you is to just sit right where you are. Maybe just open up your hands. Put them on your knees if you want. Just open up as if you're letting go of what you had a handle on. You're letting go. And your hands are open to receive what God will put there. We're saying to the Lord, it doesn't work for me to be in control of my life. I'm going to take a vacation from that. I'm going to step off the hamster wheel. I'm going to just quiet my spirit, my anxious inward thoughts. And I'm going to receive from you. Yes you have for me now with that in mind let's pray Father thank you for your eternal invitation for us to be with you where you are to have uninterrupted fellowship with you and that in the loving you in the being with you, we would become who you've made us to be. We would accomplish the purpose you created us to complete. It's hard for us to be still, but it is the path to knowing not what we already know, but all the stuff we don't know. Yes, that's right. Letting go of what we already think is the truth we have so that we can go deeper and further into truth of the person that your Holy Spirit could lead us further and further into full revelation of who you are. Yes. Father, help us let go help us get still you're so quick to respond with kindness at any little step of obedience and so God our our thoughts our hearts are wanting something more than we've already experienced but we don't always know how to get from here to there but if we say, Father, take all of me. Come and be in control of my thoughts, of my feelings, of my choices, of my motives. You are more than capable. Yes, Lord, you are. And so we present ourselves before you. Knowing that you are good and capable and willing and present have your way in us Lord yes Lord 
We confess, Lord, our hurried lives, the inward turmoil that we don't put at the cross. Instead, we foster it. We feed it. We add to its frenetic pacing. We never stop and ask for your help. I pray against the the anxiety that so many of us feel, a spirit of anxiety that comes and grips and doesn't let go. We stand against that in in the name of Jesus, knowing that we have very real enemies that work against us, spiritual forces of darkness that attack us, suck us in, pull us away. We bind those things in the name of Jesus so that our attention can be poured onto you and not onto ourselves. Lord, we don't need a method for handling our stress better. We need a savior. We need someone whose yoke is easy and burden is light. We need someone who will give us rest in the midst of our turmoil thanks be to God we have that in you so we let go of what's holding on to us and we ask Lord that you would put in our hands what we need we respond to you in faith believing that you are here that you are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think We pray, Father, for the fullness of God to be indwelling in each of us. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen.